0: Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip?
1: No, I don't believe in it. I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. It's for the birds. (coughs) I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job.
2: Hello and welcome to Planet Money. It's Friday, June 17th.
0: And that was Steve Buscemi, aka Mr. Pink, from the movie Reservoir Dogs with his famous rant on tipping.
2: I'm Caitlin Kenny and I'll be your host today.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Robert Smith. And I will be your co host today.
2: Today's special a podcast on the economics of tipping, featuring the history of the tip and why it doesn't work the way everyone thinks it does.
0: But first, we
3: appetize it. May I suggest the Planet
0: Money Indicator
3: with Jacob Goldstein? Today's Planet Money Indicator is 22. The TED spread today is twenty two basis points.
2: (laughs) i the TED spread is back. Yes. I have to say, I knew it was coming, but it's very exciting. We haven't had the TED spread on Planet Money in forever.
3: So the TED spread, our most loyal Planet Money listeners will recall, it's basically a measure of how nervous big banks are about lending money to each other. We used it all the time back in the earliest days of Planet Money, back before I was even here. And so right now, the TED spread is actually pretty low, 22 basis points. That's 0.22%. What that tells us is banks are pretty comfortable about lending money to each other right now. During the financial crisis, right, when Planet Money launched, the TED spread was 10 or even at one point 20 times as wide as it is today.
2: So why are we talking about it, then, if there's not much going on?
3: So I I actually picked it today because of all the news out of Greece this week, right? Clearly, one of the big global economic stories this week has been Greece. And one of the key questions has been, what would a Greek default mean for the banks, particularly for the big banks in Europe? Moody's had this note out this week saying that they're reviewing some of the biggest banks in France based on their exposure to Greek debt. People were throwing around this phrase, a Lehman moment. Is this going to be a Lehman moment? And so it seems like if the smart money, if banks themselves are really nervous about the banking system and about other banks, they should be getting more nervous about lending to banks, right? So you should see the TED spread getting wider if banks are, in fact, nervous. But when you look at the TED spread this week, it barely budged. So it basically suggests, you know, people are clearly scared about Greece in sort of this broad kind of newsy way. But the banks themselves, they aren't that nervous about what a Greek default would mean for the European banking system.
2: Could this be Jacob Goldstein actually giving us good news for once? Well, I mean,
3: I found it very interesting, right? Because it does sort of cut against the grain of the news.
2: Right. Everything you see is like everything's blowing up in Greece. Everyone's freaking out. Investors are pulling their money out. But then here we have the banks clearly saying they're not that afraid.
3: Right. The banks themselves still have faith in the banking system.
2: All right. Thanks so much, Jacob.
3: Sure. Thanks, guys. And I'd also like to thank uh, Jacob Kierkegaard of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. I talked through this with him this morning. It was very helpful.
2: Thank you, Jacob. And now on to tipping.
0: Now, we've all been there, right? You're, you're in a restaurant and you're about to leave the tip. You're about to leave some money. And you, and you start to think, well, I don't know. I mean, how good a service did I get? I didn't see the waiter very much, but, you know, my food was good. It came out on time. And then you, as you're thinking of this, you think, this is such a a bizarre custom
2: especially when you think about it from an economic standpoint as we do here on planet money there's all these questions like why do we tip waiters and waitresses but not say a lifeguard at the beach or the mechanic who fixes your car or the guy who comes to install your cable i mean they work just as hard for a living and we value their service too
0: and you can say oh well we do it because we want to guarantee great service in a restaurant when we're out but if you think about that, then why would you ever tip if you're in a restaurant that you don't plan on going to again? Or, or why would you put money in a tip jar if the barista has turned his back and is no longer looking?
2: And what about other countries that don't have the custom of tipping that we do? People there seem to get their food and drinks on time. The social fabric doesn't fly apart.
0: And I should say, before you think that we're haters here, both Caitlin and I have spent years of our lives waiting tables.
2: Five years. Big shout out to Rock Bottom Boston
0: two years, Huber's in Portland, Oregon, and we know more than anyone, we know that waiters and waitresses work hard for a living, that they make most of their money from tips, and that's how they feed their kids, and that's how they go to school, and that's how they pay their rent. So listen, we love you, waiters and waitresses. But when you start to think about this economically, then all of a sudden that rant from Reservoir Dog, Steve Buscemi, I mean, the guy asked some good questions. You
1: know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bull- Today,
0: we try to understand how we got in this tipping system in the first place. And really, does it do any good at all?
2: To try to answer this question, we went to a former waiter. Michael Lynn used to wait tables at Pizza Hut, also at a fancy French restaurant in Austin, Texas. He's now a professor of food and beverage management at Cornell, and he spent a lot of time studying tipping.
0: And Michael says to make sense of this, you actually have to go back to the very beginning, the dawn of tipping 500 years ago. And it turns out that at its start, Tipping did make more economic
4: sense. There were selfish reasons for giving a little bit of extra money to your servers. Supposedly, tipping originated in the 16th century in coffee houses, where there were these boxes with iron pads around them. And the way the story goes, each box had the words, to ensure promptness on the side. And patrons would publicly and visibly put coins in these boxes as an incentive then for the staff to give them prompt service. So I'm, I'm in a crowded
0: coffee house. I want my coffee. And I notice there's a lot of people in front of me. So I drop a few coins in this bowl and uh, I get my latte first or whatever they were serving in the day. That's the theory. And this theory of the origin of tipping is the one that appeals to those of us, like myself, who like to think of humans as selfish creatures. I mean, tipping was essentially a bribe. It was a payment for extra service. I mean, it made sense. You were trying to get ahead of others. You're trying to cut the line. And it's worth every cent. If you're in a rush, you're going to pay that money up front and you're going to get what you came for.
2: Of course, a lot of things have changed since then. We don't drop coins into metal buckets anymore. A lot of times now we put them inside a check presenter or maybe even a jar by a register. Also now we tip after the meal, after the service has been provided typically.
0: And instead of just a few people, those in a hurry, giving these tips, now everybody does it. But we still cling to the idea that somehow the promise of 15 percent is going to ensure promptness, as they say.
2: Yeah, there's still this expectation that there's a direct link between good service and good tipping. But, of course, Planet Money, we wanted to test it out. We put this call out on our Twitter feed and we said, hey, anybody who depends on tips for a living, tell us what it's like. Here's one of the people we heard from.
1: I'm Jessica Gibson, and I'm a bartender in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And here's the thing. We
0: we talk to servers like Jessica all around the country, and almost all of them believe totally in their hearts that good tips will get you good service, and good service will bring better tips.
1: You know, I do feel like the harder I work, the the greater service I provide, you know, as a resource and as, you know, a a personality, um, I do feel like for the most part, I'm compensated for that.
0: So you actually feel that the level of tip you get is within your control. If you do a good job, you will get a bigger tip.
1: To a degree. I mean, there are people that are going to have, you know, their, their preconceived notions of what they're going to tip. They, they know what they're going to tip, your percentage they're going to tip you when they walk in the door. Um, but I think that that's the minority of people, at least in my experience.
2: Yeah. Professor Michael Lynn has looked at this in his research, and he has bad news for Jessica. In fact,
4: if we look at the actual relationship between the customer's ratings of service and the amount they tip, there is a relationship. People do tip more when they get better service, just not a whole lot more. It's a pretty weak relationship. Other studies have found, for example, that the amount of sunshine outside and variations in sunshine have as big an impact on the tips that customers leave as the customer's ratings of service quality. Because people are happier? It's a nice day? Presumably, yes.
2: That is depressing to every server out there who's listening to this Especially right Especially in now. Seattle and Portland <laughs> where it's raining all the time.
4: <laughs> exactly. That weak relationship certainly raises questions about whether tipping still provides an incentive. You see, something happened in the 500 years since tipping began,
0: and that's something called social pressure. I mean, it's not just the people who are in a hurry who are now tipping. It's everybody. And if everybody tips the same amount, 15%, 20%, if there's that social pressure, then there's really no incentive anymore for a server to treat one person differently than another, for a server to actually, I don't know, move faster, give better service.
2: So the customers aren't really rewarding good service. But against all the evidence out there, Michael Lynn says most servers still think they do. They still believe if they give good service, they'll get a good tip in return.
4: The vast majority of servers believe that their tips are related to the quality of service they provide. And as long as they hold that belief, they're motivated then to provide good service in order to maximize their income. And it's easy to believe it because... That's what the social norms, and that's what you always read about. Tips are supposed to be a reflection of service quality. And so it's easy to delude myself. It's funny because even
0: Jessica, our bartender, takes part in this little delusion. Jessica swore. She swore that tips are based on service, that she has control over this. But then again, when she goes out, she always tips well, regardless of service.
1: I would never tip less than 20%. I mean, you could... Vomit on my plate, and I would still tip you 20%.
0: <laughs> Imagine if you don't vomit the kind of tip you're going to get. <laughs> Michael, it says that this bizarre situation it is a bizarre situation where customers tip generally the same amounts because it's expected, and yet servers believe there's some sort of reward in there for good service. This myth actually works in a weird way. He's done studies that show that when there's an automatic service charge on a, on a cruise ship, let's say, instead of tipping, the perceived level of service does go down.
2: OK, so what's going on here? Because we've ruled out the idea that we tip because it gets us better service. Now we know. Not the case. So why are we doing it? We talked with Michael Lynn about this, and he says there's this whole other way of looking at it. Instead of buying better service with your tip, maybe you're buying something else. You're buying your way out of guilt.
4: One of the theories introduced by an anthropologist named George Foster is that tipping originated in eating and drinking establishments as a way of forestalling the envy of the server. That if I'm at a bar drinking, the people working are in a much worse position than me. I'm having fun. They're doing menial work. And they're likely to envy my privileged status and who knows what they might do, spit in my drink, whatever. So I want to forestall that envy and the way I do it is I give them some money and I say, here's some money for you can have a drink on me at the end of the, your work hours. And his evidence to support this theory is that the word for tip in many different languages around the world, in uh, in Austria, Belgium, Bosnia, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Latvia, Norway, Sweden, even Vietnam. The word for tip translates to drink money.
2: And this theory also explains why we tip the people that we do. We tend to tip in places where we're having a lot more fun than the people serving us, like when we're in a bar, in a restaurant, on vacation or on a cruise ship.
0: Yeah, but we don't tip in grocery stores.
2: Or even at the dry cleaners, because that just feels like more of a straightforward business transaction.
0: Yeah, so it used to make sense to tip because of these little bribe boxes 500 years ago. But now we do it because we want to relieve this guilt.
2: And, of course, to avoid people spitting in our drinks.
0: So let's test out the guilt theory. We're going to go back to our Planet Money crew of servers from around the nation. This one.
4: My name's Corey Norris, and um, I live in Reno, Nevada. I'm a full-time bellhop. And I work the graveyard shift Monday through Friday.
2: Corey says that tipping will not get you better service at his hotel in Reno. He says doing it is just totally an emotional reaction.
4: If you're going to ask help for somebody to pull your luggage up to your room at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, are you really not going to tip the guy? I get the feeling. I really do get the feeling that people feel guilty asking for help at such a late hour.
2: And Corey plays off this. He says, if people don't give him a tip, he's got this little trick he uses. He says, if people don't tip him immediately when he brings the luggage up to the room, he asks for their claim check. You know, that's the little ticket that they give you when you check into the hotel. You leave your luggage downstairs and they give you a little ticket. And he said... He does this because people usually keep this little ticket in their pocket or in their wallet, generally where their money is. So it's very awkward for them to pull this ticket out and not hand him a couple bucks while they're doing it. And most of the time he says this trick works. People end up giving him a dollar or two.
0: But as you can see, this whole emotional theory of tipping sets up some perverse incentives for people who – make a living by tips. There's this economic motivation for waiters or waitresses or bellhops to buddy up to you, to create an emotional connection so that you'll actually feel a little more guilty about stiffing them.
2: But just be clear, we're not saying this is like emotional blackmail or anything. I mean, sometimes it's fun to be manipulated like this. We headed down to a bar and restaurant in the Lower East Side called Verlane to test this out.
0: A slick joint. There's a DJ booth above the door. There's low lighting. There's specialist lychee martinis.
2: Hey guys, how we doing? Do you guys know about our happy hour? No, what do you got? Keith Groff hey, works so the bar here, here like he's just hanging out, uh, having okay. a great time. Five, and all of his customers, five seven, five, they're just five, along five, for five, the party.
3: I feel very confident in just uh, being able to produce a environment, like a show almost. And people are tipping me on their experience.
0: Look, he basically says, you're not paying just for the drink. You're paying to feel like you're included here, that you're among friends. You're having a good time. It's a party. What's a tip?
2: Another waitress here, Victoria Benzinger, also plays along. She shows off a little skin and she flirts. I think you want them to feel like they maybe could have a chance
1: with you, but really that's just like the facade. It's not real. Do you know what I mean?
3: (laughs) It's part of the hustle. It's part of the hustle. For sure.
0: And just in case the whole buddy-buddy routine doesn't work, the whole, hey, everybody knows your name, you're a friend here, just in case that doesn't work, Keith has a little trick. If someone at the bar orders a drink and he doesn't tip, Keith won't spit in their drink or anything, but he will start to lavish attention on the people to the right and to the left of the cheapskate. Free drinks, jokes. He will show you what you're missing. I mean, he'll show you the value of a tip.
2: And Keith says when he does this, it usually works. He often gets an apology and the deadbeat ends up leaving tips for the rest of the night. So it's a great deal for Keith. But you have to think about the cheapskate here. And I have to say, as a former waitress, it's really hard for me to sympathize with the guy who doesn't tip or girl. But think about it from their perspective. They're in a really hard spot. Michael Lynn thinks about this a lot when he's researching tipping. And he says after a lifetime of studying it, he still isn't so sure that this system works for everyone.
4: I think it's quite possible that tipping norms undermine overall uh, satisfaction or happiness. The social pressures people feel to give up money they would rather keep, that loss, I mean, for them, tipping is a net loss. And it's, it's very possible that that net loss exceeds the benefits.
2: And if it's a net loss, it's a big one. It's estimated that we give about $40 billion worth of tips a year in the United States. I mean, think about that, $40 billion so that we can feel like our servers like us, so we can go on living in in the illusion that everyone's happy and generous.
0: Now, the $40 billion is great for the service industry. That's how they make their living. That's how they pay their bills. But do think about the cost. I mean, every time you felt anxiety because you got lousy service but you were too afraid to give anything less than 20 percent, think about that anxiety. I mean, think about the moments that you paused, terrified that you did the math wrong and you ended up stiffing some poor person you meant to give a good tip to.
2: Or all those moments where you're wondering whether you tipped the concierge who made reservations for you or the girl who shampooed your hair before the hairdresser cut it. Or the deli guy who makes your sandwich.
0: Yeah, I think you tip the shampooer, but not the deli guy. See, (laughs) I, I have no idea. See, that's the thing about tipping is that because it's based on custom, because it's based on emotion, because it's 500 years of all these intricate rules, I got to admit at the end of our podcast, it's never going to make sense completely. There's no logic to a lot of this. But the big question is, how do you undo it? How do you undo 500 years worth of custom and expectation? How do you unravel it? I mean, no one wants to be the first guy. And economists do recommend this. But nobody wants to be that first guy who starts stiffing all the waiters because they feel like tipping is illogical.
2: And there have been cases of restaurants who've tried to do away with it. We read this article in The New York Times about a place out on the West Coast. And they talked about how their customers were really confused. And they had a really hard time explaining, oh, no, 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 you don't have to tip.
0: And, you know, I talked to all these servers, and the one question I always wanted to ask them was, listen, if we could guarantee for you, if we could guarantee you would make the same amount of money, let's just say the restaurant slapped on a service charge, paid you that money, you could make a steady amount of money, you would know exactly what you're making. In that case, would it be better for you to do away with tipping? And even then, the waiters and waitresses said, no. I mean, even even though they roll the dice every night on your generosity, even though they get stiffed. Waiters and waitresses say they can't figure out a better system. They like it. They like the excitement. And, you know, for every bad tip, there's a good one around the corner.
3: I'm sorry if you
1: seem to have the weight of the world over you.
2: I cherish your smile. Thank everyone who responded to our Twitter call out about tipping. We got tons of responses and emails. And we're so sorry we couldn't talk to all of you. But we're, of course, still anxious to hear what you think about tipping, how you think it should work, and what you thought of today's show. Please email us, planetmoney at npr.org.
0: And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Robert Smith.
2: And I'm Caitlin Kenney. Have a great night.
0: Tip your waitresses.
3: You know, you blow them all to the wall when they realize what you've been working for. What you've been working for. What you've been working for. for.